Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism with courses on offer for every occult and esoteric topic under the sun. You can learn meditation, you can learn her- hermetic magic, you can learn astral travel to impress your friends and family members. You can learn I Ching and tarot. You can learn basically everything there is to learn in the Western magical tradition and beyond, including the Eastern traditions and all kinds of great stuff. In short, everything you need to know to evolve your entire organism to a completely new level, or at the very least to learn how to focus very, very deeply to achieve states of de-stressing, relaxation, and enjoyment, even in the worst of times to get all of the skills you need to manifest your true self, the life that you are truly meant to live, even if the world is not offering you, apparently, many opportunities to do that right now. This is your opportunity. This is your sign. This is the sign you have been waiting for. And we now have a free introductory course. It's called Why Magic? Start Here. And it's a quick introductory session, which includes, by the way, a brand new free guided meditation, which will knock your socks off, as they say. And I really mean that. It's really something. The new course will fill you in on everything that you need to know to understand not just what magic is and what it can do for you, but what the Magic Me School is and how it works and what order to take courses in. Again, it's totally free. It's new. Just go to magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Scroll down. You will see a button for a course called Why Magic Start Here and check it out. And the free meditation is in there as well. All right. It's story time again. We had a really, really good response to um, a few episodes back. We did a reading of Transcendental Magic by LFA's Levy, one of the great occult works of the 19th century. People really dug that. So guess what? It's story time again. We're going to go even crazier this time. This is a text from the Nag Hammadi codices, which were dug up in the desert in the 1940s. Actually, let me let me pull this up on Wikipedia just because I don't want to get this wrong um, for those who don't know. So the Nag Hammadi Library is a collection of early Christian and Gnostic texts discovered near the upper Egyptian town of Nag Hammadi in 1945. Thirteen leather-bound papyrus codices buried in a sealed jar were found by a local farmer named Muhammad al-Saman. The writings in these codices comprise 52 mostly Gnostic treatises, treatises, treatises. They were written in the Coptic language, and there are many well-known documents that were found in there, including the Gospel of Thomas. But there's also some real weird stuff in there. So I'm guessing a lot of my listeners know what Gnosticism is, but if you don't, let me just give you the bullet points. So the Gnostics were the early Christians in the first three centuries after the death of Christ before Christianity was codified and normalized at the Council of Nicaea, at which point they decided what textuses were going to make up the official Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there was actually that's actually a really interesting thing to look up because there was a lot of contention about what was going to go in there, particularly around the book of Revelation, which 
was kind of voted in only at the last minute and a lot of people did not want that in there. Um, good thing that it's in there because it's the most fun part of the whole book. But if you think the book of Revelation was weird, you should see the stuff they left out. There were tons and tons and tons of Christian manuscripts or, you know, broadly speaking, Christian manuscripts or things that were part of that, you know, intellectual stream for, we're talking three centuries. That's a lot of time to, I mean, think about three, what was, you know, three centuries ago from now, I mean, we're basically talking about the revolutionary war period, the French revolution period. So, uh, think of the, the amount of intellectual development that's happened since then. And, you know, try being clear on what exactly happened in the 1700s and explaining that exactly to somebody with no mistakes if you weren't there. So that's a really, really, really fascinating period of history. It's a period that coincides with, you know, the final decline and fall of the Roman Empire, the spread of Christianity around the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and North Africa. It's just a pivotal moment for world history, as well as the quote unquote barbarian tribes coming down from the north and other parts of Europe, the east of Europe, and all around Europe, and sacking Rome. There was just so much cross cultural contact during that period. So the Gnostics were early uh, cults, basically, early cultic Christian groups who often took the basic material of the, you know, that was later written down into, into the New Testament and went into some really, really weird places with it. The Gnostics really did not get any attention because there were next to no, or actually, I could be wrong on this, but I think actually no surviving original texts from the Gnostics until the 1940s when a bunch of them were found at Nag Hammadi, also the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they just found them in the desert weirdly enough after the end of world war ii when the world itself was entering a completely new epoch of history they just showed up now we have the original texts instead of what we had before which was fragmentary survivals of the original ideas in things like or or you know revivals of old gnostic ideas in things perhaps as as some people have alleged at least or or proposed in things like Catharism in France in the 12th century, or maybe even the Hermetic tradition, or the Knights Templar, or the Freemasons, or Western magic itself. You can see echoes of these ideas through all of those things, including the work of John Dee. But nobody had the original texts, textuses, as far as we know. Now we do, and it was worth the wait. So the Gnostics had a lot of total ideas that are totally in contravention to Christianity as we understand it. So it's no surprise that uh, a lot of them just got killed off by the mainstream Christians and then they were edited out of the story. A lot of their heretical ideas, which are kind of all over the place because we're talking about a lot of different groups here, included things like completely turning on its head the dictomy of God and the devil. Um talking about the Old Testament God as not the ultimate God, but an evil, insane demiurge that created the world that Christ descends into to wake us up from, an idea used, obviously, in the Matrix movies. 
Um, there's lots and lots of cool stuff there. They talked a lot about the idea, not only of this demiurge or false god, blind creator god that created our illusory universe and set itself up to make us think that it is the ultimate god, but also the servants of this being, the archons, who are basically just cosmic cops that keep everything under control and keep people from gaining gnosis, which specifically means transcendental, divine, awakened knowledge, but obviously not knowledge that you learn or read from a book, but just something that suddenly dawns on you. You're awakened to something as if by a cosmic catalyst. So all kinds of fun stuff there. They were really into magic as well. A lot of these old texts are full of magical incantations, spells, protection spells from archons and authorities and all kinds of fun stuff. If you have not dug into the Gnostic literature, it's well worth doing. If you have not done it, it is far past time for you to look into it. It is the pure stuff in many ways. A lot of it is fragmentary. A lot of it is extremely confusing, but it's worth the time to sit with. As a side note, I also want to say that if you are really interested in Gnosticism, the best place to start actually, in my opinion, is not necessarily the textuses themselves, unless you're a real academic and you want to just go straight to the good stuff, but is actually the book Valis from the 1970s written by the science fiction author Philip K. Dick, who was also famous for writing the source material, the books that became the movie Blade Runner, the TV show The Man in the High Castle, lots and lots of other stuff. I think Minority Report. There's a ton of movies based on his books. Great, great writer, very likely the best science fiction writer of the 20th, 20th century. One of my favorite writers. Vallis is a semi-autobiographical quote-unquote novel that he wrote in the early 70s, which is about a character named Horse Lover Fat, who, which is supposed to be him, Philip K. Dick, who is a meth-addicted science fiction writer, which he was in the, at that point, I believe the East Bay or the Bay Area of California, who was surrounded by the casualties of the drug culture, or the, the fallout from the 1960s. All of his friends are dying of drugs and just everyone's miserable. Uh, and he's, you know, as Philip K. Dick, as Philip K. Dick actually did in real life is just, you know, has just worn himself out just doing speed for years and years and years to meet deadlines and crank out science fiction books to make a living, a meager living, which is why he wrote so many books. But as Philip K. Dick actually did in real life, this character has a sudden Gnostic awakening where, okay, just bear with me here for a second, where a satellite orbiting the earth called Vallis beams a pink laser into the front of his forehead, which transmits the logos or living word of Christ, which Dick refers to as a plasmate or living, an entity made of living information, which enters his mind awakens him to the primal Christian gnosis and alerts him to the fact that the entire world is actually an illusion. On one level, it is something that he calls zebra, which is an alien so big that it hides as everything. It is an alien, uh, an alien camouflage as the entire visible world. And moreover, beyond that, that this illusion has been constructed by the Roman Empire 
It is a black iron prison designed to keep all consciousness locked down and controlled. And specifically, it is a virtual reality to, created by the Roman Empire to prevent people from realizing that Christ has come, been crucified, and opened up salvation to the world. And that in actuality, it is still 70 AD in Rome that salvation is possible for everyone and the Roman Empire is just doing its best to make people think that it is the 1970s in the Bay Area and that this is not actually, that this has never happened and they are still controlled by, in Philip K. Dick's words, the empire that never ends. So, very, very good, often depressing, but extremely good book. Highly recommend it. It will give you the vibe of what Gnosticism was all about, but... Before you even get there, this podcast is a reading of the Gnostic text on the origin of the world, which is one of the most out there uh, texts in the entire Gnostic canon. And that's saying something because there's a lot of stuff in there and it's, it's Jack Kirby level cosmic, a lot of it. So this specifically is a creation, a creation story. It is a, I won't say too much about it. I will let you discover it as you listen, but it is a subversion and complete rewriting, or perhaps let's just say maybe even just a, a more truthful version of the creation story in Genesis. It is a version of the creation story from the Gnostic perspective that we will say starts from the perspective that the quote unquote God of Genesis is not actually the ultimate God, but is a vengeful, angry and deluded spirit that is creating this aeon or illusory world to um, spitefully trap consciousness and set itself up as the ultimate, the ultimate um, boss at the end of the game. So check it out. Here's what Wikipedia says about it. On the Origin of the World is a Gnostic work dealing with creation and the end time. It was found among the texts Textuses in what is known as the Nag Hammadi Library in Codex 2 and Codex 13, immediately following the reality of the rulers, also known as the hypostasis of the archons. There are many parallels between the two texts. The manuscript does not have a title, but scholars have dubbed it on the origin of the world because of what it describes. It is estimated to have been written sometime near the end of the third century. While the author is not mentioned, they seem to have been interested in expressing a Gnostic understanding of the world's conception. In particular, it rethinks the entire story of Genesis and positions Yaldabaoth, the Demiurge, as the creator of the world, fulfilling the role of God in Genesis. Furthermore, the serpent in the Garden of Eden is depicted as a hero sent by Sophia, the figure of wisdom, to guide mankind towards enlightenment. It expresses one approach to the creation and end of the world. Other myths found within the Nag Hammadi collection have varying explanations and details. This one has a distinct perspective. It intertwines views from Judaism, Christianity, Hellenistic and Egyptian thought, and others in order to help explain its concept of Gnosticism. All right, that's the trailer. Strap in. This is even better than the new Top Gun movie. You will very, very, very much enjoy it. I will see you in class.
on the origin of the world. Seeing that everybody, gods of the world and mankind, says that nothing existed prior to chaos, I, in distinction to them, shall demonstrate that they are all mistaken, because they are not acquainted with the origin of chaos, nor with its root. Here is the demonstration, how well it suits all men on the subject of chaos to say that it is a kind of darkness, but in fact it comes from a shadow, which has been called by the name darkness. And the shadow comes from a product that has existed since the beginning. It is, moreover, clear that it existed before chaos came into being, and that the latter is posterior to the first product. Let us therefore concern ourselves with the facts of the matter, and furthermore with the first product from which chaos was projected. And in this way the truth will be clearly demonstrated. After the natural structure of the immortal beings had completely developed out of the infinite, a likeness then emanated from pistis, faith. It is called Sophia, wisdom. It exercised volition and became a product resembling the primeval light. And immediately her will manifested itself as a likeness of heaven, having an unimaginable magnitude. It was between the immortal beings and those things that came into being after them. She, Sophia, functioned as a veil dividing mankind from the things above. Now the aeon of truth has no shadow outside it, for the limitless light is everywhere within it but its exterior is shadow, which has been called by the name darkness. From it there appeared a force presiding over the darkness, and the forces that came into being subsequent to them called the shadow, the limitless chaos. From it, every kind of divinity sprouted up, together with the entire place, so that also shadow was posterior to the first product. It was in the abyss that it, shadow, appeared, deriving from the aforementioned pistis. Then Shadow perceived that there was something mightier than it and felt envy, and when it had become pregnant of its own accord, suddenly it engendered jealousy. Since that day, the principle of jealousy amongst all the aeons and their worlds has been apparent. Now as for that jealousy, it was found to be an abortion without any spirit in it. Like a shadow, it came into existence in a vast watery substance. Then the bile that had come into being out of the shadow was thrown into a part of chaos. Since that day, a watery substance has been apparent, and what sank within it flowed away, being visible in chaos, as with a woman giving birth to a child. All her superfluities flow out, just so matter came into being out of shadow and was projected apart. And it did not depart from chaos. Rather, matter was in chaos, being in a part of it. And when these things had come to pass, then Pistis came and appeared over the matter of chaos, which had been expelled like an aborted fetus, since there was no spirit in it. For all of it was limitless darkness and bottomless water. Now, when Pistis saw what had resulted from her defect, she became disturbed. And the disturbance appeared as a fearful product. It rushed to her in the chaos. She turned to it and blew into its face in the abyss, which is below all the heavens. And when Pistis Sophia desired to cause the thing that had no spirit to be formed into a likeness, and to rule over matter and over all her forces, there appeared for the first time a ruler out of the waters, lion-like in appearance, androgynous, having great authority within him, and ignorant of whence he had come into being. Now when Pistis Sophia saw him moving about in the depth of the waters, she said to him, Child, pass through to here. 
whose equivalent is Yalda Bayoth. Since that day, there appeared the principle of verbal expression, which reached the gods and the angels and mankind. And what came into being as a result of verbal expression, the gods and the angels and mankind finished. Now as for the ruler, Yaltabaoth, he is ignorant of the force of Pistis. He did not see her face. Rather, he saw in the water the likeness that spoke with him. And because of that voice, he called himself Yaltabaoth. But Ariel is what the perfect call him, for he was like a lion. Now when he had come to have authority over matter, Pistis Sophia withdrew up to her light. When the ruler saw his magnitude, and it was only himself that he saw, he saw nothing else except for water and darkness, then he supposed that it was he alone who existed. His will was completed by verbal expression. It appeared as a spirit moving to and fro upon the waters. And when that spirit appeared, the ruler set apart the watery substance, and what was dry was divided into another place, and from matter he made for himself an abode, and he called it heaven. And from matter the ruler made a footstool, and he called it earth. Next the ruler had a thought, consistent with his nature, and by means of verbal expression he created an androgyne. He opened his mouth and cooed to him. When his eyes had been opened, he looked at his father, and he said to him, E. Then his father called him E-A-O. Next he created the second son. He cooed to him, and he opened his eyes and said to his father, Eh. His father called him L-O-I. Next he created the third son. He cooed to him, and he opened his eyes and said to his father, As. His father called him Astaphaos. These are the three sons of their father. Seven appeared in chaos, androgynous. They have their masculine names and their feminine names. The feminine name is Pronoia Sambathos, which is weak, and his son is called Yao. His feminine name is Lordship. Sabaoth, his feminine name, is Deity. Adonaios, his feminine name, is kingship. Eloeos, his feminine name, is jealousy. Oreos, his feminine name, is wealth. And Astaphaos, his feminine name, is Sophia. These are the seven forces of the seven heavens of chaos. And they were born androgynous, consistent with the immortal pattern that existed before them, according to the wish of Pistis so that the likeness of what had existed since the beginning might reign to the end. You will find the effect of these names and the force of the male entities in the archangelic book of the prophet Moses, and the names of the female entities in the book of Norea. Now the prime parent, Yaldabaoth, since he possessed great authorities, created heavens for each of his offspring through verbal expression, created them beautiful as dwelling places, and in each heaven he created great glories, seven times excellent, thrones and mansions and temples, and also chariots and virgin spirits up to an invisible one, and their glories, each one has these in his heaven, mighty armies of gods and lords and angels, and archangels, countless myriads, so that they might serve. The account of these matters you will find in a precise manner in the first account of Orea. 
And they were completed from this heaven to as far up as the sixth heaven, namely that of Sophia. The heaven and his earth were destroyed by the troublemaker that was below them all, and the six heavens shook violently. For the forces of chaos knew who it was that had destroyed the heaven that was below them. And when Pistis knew about the breakage resulting from the disturbance, she sent forth her breath and bound him and cast him down into Tartarus. Since that day, the heaven, along with its earth, has consolidated itself through Sophia, the daughter of Yaldabaoth, she who is below them all. Now when the heavens had consolidated themselves along with their forces and all their administration, the prime parent became insolent, and he was honored by all the army of angels, and all the gods and their angels gave blessing and honor to him. And for his part, he was delighted and continually boasted, saying to them, I have no need of anyone. He said, it is I who am God, and there is no other one that exists apart from me. And when he said this, he sinned against all the immortal beings who give answer, and they laid it to his charge. Then when Pistis saw the impiety of the chief ruler, she was filled with anger. She was invisible. She said, you are mistaken, Samael, that is, blind God. There is an immortal man of light who has been in existence before you and who will appear among your mottled forms. He will trample you to scorn just as potter's clay is pounded, and you will descend to your mother the abyss along with those that belong to you. For at the consummation of your works, the entire defect that has become visible out of the truth will be abolished, and it will cease to be and will be like what has never been. Saying this, Pistis revealed her likeness of her greatness in the waters. And so doing, she withdrew up to her light. Now when Sabaoth, the son of Yaldabaoth, heard the voice of Pistis, he sang praises to her, and he condemned the father at the word of Pistis, and he praised her because she had instructed them about the immortal man and his light. Then Pistis Sophia stretched out her finger and poured upon him some light from her light to be a condemnation of his father. Then... When Sabaoth was illumined, he received great authority against all the forces of chaos. Since that day, he has been called Lord of the Forces. He hated his father, the darkness, and his mother, the abyss, and loathed his sister, the thought of the prime parent, which moved to and fro upon the waters. And because of his light, all the authorities of chaos were jealous of him. And when they had become disturbed, they made a great war in the seven heavens. Then when Pistis Sophia had seen the war, she dispatched seven archangels to Sabaoth from her light. They snatched him up to the seventh heaven. They stood before him as attendants. Furthermore, she sent him three more archangels and established the kingdom for him over everyone, so that he might dwell above the twelve gods of chaos. Now when Sabaoth had taken up the place of repose and returned for his repentance, Pistis also gave him her daughter, Zoe, life, together with great authority, so that she might instruct him about all the things that exist in the eighth heaven. And as he had authority, he made himself first of all a mansion. It is huge, magnificent, seven times as great as all those that exist in the seven heavens. Before his mansion, he created a throne which was huge, and was upon a four-faced chariot called Cherubin. Now the Cherubin has eight shapes per each of the four corners, lion forms and calf forms and human forms and eagle forms, so that all the forms amount to sixty-four forms. 
and he created seven archangels that stand before it. He is the eighth and has authority. All the forms amount to 72. Furthermore, from this chariot, the 72 gods took shape. They took shape so that they might rule over the 72 languages of the peoples. And by that throne, he created other serpent-like angels called seraphim, which praise him at all times. Thereafter, he created a congregation, ecclesia, of angels, thousands and myriads, numberless, which resembled the congregation in the eighth heaven, and a firstborn called Israel, which is the man that sees God, and another being called Jesus Christ, who resembles the Savior above in the eighth heaven, and who sits at his right upon a revered throne, and at his left there sits the Virgin of the Holy Spirit upon a throne and glorifying him. And the seven virgins stand before her, possessing thirty harps, and psalteries, and trumpets, glorifying him. And all the armies of the angels glorify him, and they bless him. Now where he sits is upon a throne of light, within a great cloud, that covers him. And there was no one with him in the cloud except Sophia, the daughter of Pistis, instructing him about all the things that exist in the eighth heaven, so that the likenesses of all those things might be created in order that his reign might endure until the consummation of the heavens of chaos and their forces. Now Pistis Sophia set him apart from the darkness and summoned him to her right, and the prime parent she put at her left. Since that day, right has been called justice and left called wickedness. Thus, when the prime parent of chaos saw his son Sabaoth and the glory that he was in, and perceived that he was greatest of all the authorities of chaos, he envied him. And having become wrathful, he engendered death out of his death, and he was established over the sixth heaven, for Sabaoth had been snatched up from there. And thus the number of the six authorities of chaos was achieved. Then death, being androgynous, mingled with his own nature and begot seven androgynous offspring. These are the names of the male ones, jealousy, wrath, tears, sighing, suffering, lamentation, bitter weeping. And these are the names of the female ones, wrath, pain, lust, sighing, curse, bitterness, quarrelsomeness. They had intercourse with one another, and each one begot seven, so that they amount to forty-nine androgynous demons. Their names and their effects you will find in the Book of Solomon. And in the presence of these, Zoe, who was with Sabaoth, created seven good androgynous forces. These are the names of the male ones. The unenvious, the blessed, the joyful, the true, the unbegrudging the beloved, the trustworthy. Also, as regards the female ones, these are their names. Peace, gladness, rejoicing, blessedness, truth, love, faith, pistis. And from these there are many good and innocent spirits. Their influences and their effects you will find in the configurations of the fate of heaven that is beneath the twelve. And having seen the likeness of Pistis in the waters, the prime parent grieved very much, especially when he heard her voice, like the first voice that had called to him out of the waters. And when he knew that it was she who had given a name to him, he sighed. He was ashamed on account of his transgression. And when he had come to know in truth that an immortal man of light had been existing before him, he was greatly disturbed. For he had previously said, 
to all the gods and their angels. It is I who am God. No other one exists apart from me. For he had been afraid they might know that another had been in existence before him and might condemn him. But he, being devoid of understanding, scoffed at the condemnation and acted recklessly. He said, If anything has existed before me, let it appear so that we may see its light. And immediately, behold, light came out of the eighth heaven above and passed through all the heavens of the earth. When the prime parent saw that the light was beautiful as it radiated, he was amazed, and he was greatly ashamed. As the light appeared, a human likeness appeared within it, very wonderful. And no one saw it except for the prime parent and Pronoia, who was with him. Yet its light appeared to all the forces of the heavens. Because of this, they were all troubled by it. Then when Pronoia saw that emissary, she became enamored of him. But he hated her because she was on the darkness. But she desired to embrace him, and she was not able to. When she was unable to assuage her love, she poured out her light upon the earth. Since that day, that emissary has been called Adam of Light, whose rendering is the luminous man of blood, and the earth spread over him holy Adaman, whose rendering is the holy land of Adamantine. Since that day, all the authorities have honored the blood of the virgin, and the earth was purified on account of the blood of the virgin. But most of all, the water was purified through the likeness of Pistis Sophia, who had appeared to the prime parent in the waters. Justly then, it has been said, through the waters. The holy water, since it vivifies the all, purifies it. Out of that first blood, Eros appeared, being androgynous. His masculinity is Himiraris, being fire from the light. His femininity that is with him, a soul of blood is from the stuff of Pronoia. He is very lovely in his beauty, having a charm beyond all the creatures of chaos. Then all the gods and their angels, when they beheld Eros, became enamored of him. And appearing in all of them, he set them afire. Just as from a single lamp, many lamps are lit, and one and the same light is there. But the lamp is not diminished. And in this way, Eros became dispersed in all the created beings of chaos and was not diminished. Just as from the midpoint of light and darkness, Eros appeared, and at the midpoint of the angels and mankind, the sexual union of Eros was consummated. So out of the earth, the primal pleasure blossomed. The woman followed earth, and marriage followed woman. Birth followed marriage. Dissolution followed birth. After that Eros, the grapevine sprouted up out of that blood, which had been shed over the earth. Because of this, those who drink of it conceive the desire of sexual union. After the grapevine, a fig tree and a pomegranate tree sprouted up from the earth, together with the rest of the trees, all species, having within them their seed from the seed of the authorities and their angels. Then justice created paradise, being beautiful and being outside the orbit of the moon and the orbit of the sun in the land of wantonness, in the east in the midst of the stones. And desire is in the midst of the beautiful appetizing trees, and the tree of eternal life is as it appeared by God's will to the north of paradise so that it might make eternal the souls of the pure who shall come forth from the mottled forms of poverty at the consummation of the age. 
Now the color of the tree of life is like the sun, and its branches are beautiful. Its leaves are like those of the cypress. Its fruit is like a bunch of grapes when it is white. Its height goes as far as heaven. And next to it is the tree of Gnosis, having the strength of God. Its glory is like the moon when fully radiant, and its branches are beautiful. Its leaves are like fig leaves. Its fruit is like a good appetizing date. And this tree is to the north of paradise, so that it might arouse the souls from the torpor of the demons, in order that they might approach the tree of life and eat of its fruit, and so condemn the authorities and their angels. The effect of this tree is described in the sacred book, to wit, it is you who are the tree of acquaintance which is in paradise from which the first man ate, and which opened his mind, and he loved his female counterpart and condemned the other, alien likenesses, and loathed them. Now, after it, the olive tree sprouted up, which was to purify the kings and the high priests of righteousness, who were to appear in the last days. Since the olive tree appeared out of the light of the first Adam, for the sake of the unguent that they were to receive. And the first soul, Psyche, loved Eros, who was with her, and poured her blood upon him and upon the earth. And out of that blood the first rose sprouted up out of the earth, out of the thorn bush, to be a source of joy for the light that was to appear in the bush. Moreover, after this, the beautiful, good-smelling flowers sprouted up from the earth, different kinds from every single virgin of the daughters of Pronoia. And they, when they had become enamored of Eros, poured out their blood upon him and upon the earth. After these, every plant sprouted up from the earth, different kinds, containing the seed of the authorities and their angels. After these, the authorities created out of the waters all species of beast, and the reptiles and birds, different kinds, containing the seed of the authorities and their angels. But before all these, when he had appeared on the first day, he remained upon the earth, something like two days, and left the lower pronoia in heaven and ascended towards his light, and immediately darkness covered all the universe. Now when he wished, the Sophia who was in the lower heaven received authority from Pistis, and fashioned great luminous bodies and all the stars, and she put them in the sky to shine upon the earth and to render temporal signs, and seasons, and years, and months, and days, and nights, and moments, and so forth. And in this way the entire region upon the sky was adorned. Now when Adam of Light conceived the wish to enter his light, i.e. the eighth heaven, he was unable to do so because of the poverty that had mingled with his light. Then he created for himself a vast aeon, and within that aeon he created six aeons and their adornments, six in number that were seven times better than the heavens of chaos and their adornments. Now all these aeons and their adornments exist within the infinity that is between the eighth heaven and the chaos below it, being counted with the universe that belongs to poverty. If you want to know the arrangement of these, you will find it written in the seventh universe of the prophet Herealius. And before Adam of Light had withdrawn in the chaos, the authorities saw him and laughed at the prime parent, because he had lied when he said, It is I who am God, no one exists before me. When they came to him, they said, Is this not the God who ruined our work? 
He answered and said, Yes, if you do not want him to be able to ruin our work, come, let us create a man out of earth according to the image of our body and according to the likeness of this being to serve us, so that when he, Adam of light, sees his likeness, he might become enamored of it. No longer will he ruin our work. Rather, we shall make those who are born out of the light our servants for all the duration of this aeon. Now all of this came to pass according to the forethought of Pistis, in order that man should appear after his likeness, and should condemn them because of their modeled form. And their modeled form became an enclosure of the light. Then the authorities received the gnosis necessary to create man. Sophia, Zoe, she who is with Sabaoth, had anticipated them, and she laughed at their decision, for they are blind. Against their own interests they ignorantly created him, and they do not realize what they are about to do. The reason she anticipated them and made her own man first was in order that he might instruct their modeled form how to despise them and thus to escape from them. Now the production of the instructor came about as follows. When Sophia let fall a droplet of light, it flowed onto the water, and immediately a human being appeared, being androgynous. That droplet she molded first as a female body. Afterwards, using the body, she molded it in the likeness of the mother which had appeared. And he finished it in twelve months. An androgynous human being was produced, whom the Greeks called hermaphrodites, and whose mother the Hebrews call Eve of life, Eve of Zoe, namely the female instructor of life. Her offspring is the creature that is Lord. Afterwards, the authorities called it beast, so that it might lead astray their modeled creatures. The interpretation of the beast is the instructor, for it was found to be the wisest of all beings. Now Eve is the first virgin, the one who without a husband bore her first offspring. It is she who served as her own midwife. For this reason, she is held to have said, It is I who am the part of my mother, and it is I who am the mother, it is I who am the wife, it is I who am the virgin, it is I who am pregnant, it is I who am the midwife, it is I who am the one that comforts pains of travail, it is my husband who bore me, and it is I who am his mother, and it is he who is my father and my lord. It is he who is my force. What he desires, he says with reason. I am in the process of becoming, yet I have born a man as lord. The souls that were going to enter the modeled forms of the authorities were manifested to Sabaoth and his Christ. And regarding these, the holy voice said, Multiply and improve. Be Lord over all creatures. And it is they who were taken captive, according to their destinies, by the prime parent. And thus they were shut into the prisons of the modeled forms, or at the consummation of the age. And at that time the prime parent then rendered an opinion concerning man to those who were with him. Then each of them cast his sperm into the midst of the navel of the earth. Since that day, the seven rulers have fashioned man with his body resembling their body, but his likeness resembling the man that had appeared to them. His modeling took place by parts, one at a time, and their leader fashioned the brain and the nervous system, 
Afterwards, he appeared as prior to him. He became a soul-endowed man. And he was called Adam, that is, father, according to the name of the one that existed before him. And when they had finished Adam, he abandoned him as an inanimate vessel, since he had taken form like an abortion, in that no spirit was in him. Regarding this thing, when the chief ruler remembered the saying of Pistis, he was afraid lest the true man enter his modeled form and become its lord. For this reason, he left his modeled form forty days without soul, and he withdrew and abandoned it. Now on the fortieth day, Sophia Zoe sent her breath into Adam, who had no soul. He began to move upon the ground, and he could not stand up. Then when the seven rulers came, they saw him and were greatly disturbed. They went up to him and seized him. And he, the chief ruler, said to the breath within him, Who are you, and whence did you come hither? It answered and said, I have come from the force of the man for the destruction of your work. When they heard, they glorified him, since he gave them respite from the fear and the anxiety in which they found themselves. Then they called that day rest, inasmuch as they had rested from toil. And when they saw that Adam could not stand up, they were glad, and they took him and put him in paradise, and they withdrew up to their heavens. After the day of rest, Sophia sent her daughter Zoe, being called Eve, as an instructor in order that she might make Adam, who had no soul, arise, so that those whom he could engender might become containers of light. When Eve saw her male counterpart prostrate, she had pity upon him, and said, Adam, become alive, arise upon the earth. Immediately her word became accomplished fact. For Adam, having arisen, suddenly opened his eyes. When he saw her, he said, You shall be called mother of the living, for it is you who have given me life. Then the authorities were informed that their mottled form was alive and had risen, and they were greatly troubled. They sent seven archangels to see what had happened. They came to Adam. When they saw Eve talking to him, they said to one another, What sort of thing is this luminous woman? For she resembles that likeness which appeared to us in the light. Now come, let us lay hold of her and cast our seed into her, so that when she becomes soiled, she may not be able to ascend into her light. Rather, those whom she bears will be under our charge. But let us not tell Adam, for he is not one of us. Rather, let us bring a deep sleep over him, and let us instruct him in his sleep to the effect that she came from his rib, in order that his wife may obey, and he may be lord over her. Then Eve, being a force, laughed at their decision. She put mist into their eyes, and secretly left her likeness with Adam. She entered the tree of Gnosis, and remained there. And they pursued her, and she revealed to them that she had gone into the tree and become a tree. Then, entering a great state of fear, the blind creatures fled. Afterwards, when they had recovered from the days, they came to Adam, and seeing the likeness of this woman with him, they were greatly disturbed, thinking it was she that was the true Eve. And they acted rashly. They came up to her and seized her and cast their seed upon her. They did so wickedly, defiling not only in natural ways, but also in foul ways, defiling first the seal of her voice that it's spoken with them, saying, What is it that exists before you? 
intending to defile those who might say at the consummation of the age that they had been born of the true man through verbal expression, and they erred, not knowing that it was their own body that they had defiled. It was the likeness that the authorities and their angels defiled in every way. First, she was pregnant with Abel by the first ruler, and it was by the seven authorities and their angels that she bore the other offspring. And all this came to pass according to the forethought of the prime parent, so that the first mother might bear within her every seed being mixed and being fitted to the fate of the universe and its configurations and to justice. A prearranged plan came into effect regarding Eve, so that the modeled forms of the authorities might become enclosures of the light, whereupon it, the light, would condemn them through their modeled forms. Now the first Adam, Adam of light, is spirit-endowed, pneumaticos, and appeared on the first day. The second Adam is soul-endowed, psychicos, and appeared on the sixth day, which is called Aphrodite. The third Adam is a creature of the earth, choikos, that is, the man of the law. And he appeared on the eighth day, the day of tranquility, of poverty, which is called Sunday. And the progeny of the earthly Adam became numerous and was completed, and produced within itself every kind of scientific information of the soul-endowed Adam. But all were in ignorance. Now let me say that once the rulers had seen him, and the female creature who was with him erring ignorantly like beasts, they were very glad. When they learned that the immortal man was not going to neglect them, rather that they would even have to fear the female creature that had turned into a tree, they were disturbed and said, Perhaps this is the true man, this being who has brought a fog upon us and has taught us that she who was soiled is like him, and so we shall be conquered. Then the seven of them together laid plans. They came up to Adam and Eve timidly. They said to him, The fruit of all the trees created for you in paradise shall be eaten. But as for the tree of Gnosis, control yourselves and do not eat from it. If you eat, you will die. Having imparted great fear to them, they withdrew up to their authorities. Then came the wisest of all creatures, who was called beast. And when he saw the likeness of their mother Eve, he said to her, What did God say to you? Was it do not eat from the tree of Gnosis? She said, He did. Not only do not eat from it, but do not touch it, lest you die. He said to her, Do not be afraid. In death you shall not die. For he knows that when you eat from it, your intellect will become sober and you will come to be like gods, recognizing the difference that obtains between evil men and good ones. Indeed, it was in jealousy that he said this to you, so that you would not eat from it. Now Eve had confidence in the words of the instructor. She gazed at the tree and saw that it was beautiful and appetizing, and liked it. She took some of its fruit and ate it, and she gave some also to her husband, and he too ate it. Then their intellect became open, for when they had eaten, the light of Gnosis had shone upon them. When they clothed themselves with shame, they knew that they were naked of Gnosis. When they became sober, they saw that they were naked and became enamored of one another. 
When they saw that the ones who had modeled them had the form of beasts, they loathed them. They were very aware. Then, when the rulers knew that they had broken their commandments, they entered paradise and came to Adam and Eve with earthquake and great threatening to see the effect of the aid. Then Adam and Eve trembled greatly and hid under the trees in paradise. Then the rulers did not know where they were and said, Adam, where are you? He said, I am here, for through fear of you I hid, being ashamed. And they said to him ignorantly, Who told you about the shame with which you clothed yourself? Unless you have eaten from that tree. He said, The woman who you gave me, it is she that gave to me, and I ate. Then they said to the latter, What is this that you have done? She answered and said, It is the instructor that urged me on, and I ate. Then the rulers came up to the instructor. Their eyes became misty because of him, and they could not do anything to him. They cursed him since they were powerless. Afterwards, they came up to the woman and cursed her and her offspring. After the woman, they cursed Adam and cursed the land because of him and the crops and all things that they had created. They cursed. They have no blessing. Good cannot result from evil. From that day, the authorities knew that truly there was something mightier than they. They recognized only that their commandments had not been kept. Great jealousy was brought into the world solely because of the immortal man. Now when the rulers saw that their Adam had entered into an alien state of gnosis, they desired to test him. And they gathered together all the domestic animals and the wild beasts of the earth and the birds of heaven and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. When he saw them, he gave names to their creatures. They became troubled because Adam had recovered from all the trials. They assembled and laid plans. And they said, Behold, Adam, he has come to be like one of us, so that he knows the difference between the light and the darkness. Now perhaps he will be deceived as in the case of the tree of Gnosis, and also will come to the tree of life and eat from it, and become immortal and become Lord, and despise us, and disdain us, and all our glory. Then he will denounce us along with our universe. Come, let us expel him from paradise down to the land from which he was taken, so that henceforth he might not be able to recognize anything better than we can. And so they expelled Adam from paradise along with his wife. And this deed that they had done was not enough for them. Rather, they were afraid. They went into the tree of life and surrounded it with great fearful things, fiery living creatures called cherubim, and they put a flaming sword in their midst, fearfully twirling at all times so that no earthly being might ever enter that place. Thereupon, since the rulers were envious of Adam, they wanted to diminish Adam and Eve's lifespans. They could not because of fate, which had been fixed since the beginning. For to each had been allotted a lifespan of 1,000 years, according to the course of the luminous bodies. But although the rulers could not do this, each of the evildoers took away 10 years. And all this lifespan, which remained, amounted to 930 years. And these are in pain and weakness and evil distraction. And so life has turned out to be from that day until the consummation of the age.
Then when Sophia Zoe saw that the rulers of the darkness had laid a curse upon her counterparts, she was indignant. And coming out of the first heaven with full power, she chased those rulers out of their heavens and cast them down into the sinful world so that there they should dwell in the form of evil spirits, demons upon the earth. So that in their world, it might pass the thousand years in paradise, a soul endowed living creature called Phoenix. It kills itself and brings itself to life as a witness to the judgment against them, for they did wrong to Adam and his generation unto the consummation of the age. There are three men, and also his posterities unto the consummation of the world, the spirit endowed of eternity, and the soul endowed, and the earthly. Likewise, the three phoenixes in paradise. The first is immortal, the second lives one thousand years. As for the third, it is written in the sacred book, that it is consumed. So too there are three baptisms. The first is the spiritual. The second is by fire. The third is by water. Just as the phoenix appears as a witness concerning the angels, so the case of the water hydri in Egypt, which has been a witness to those going down into the baptism of a true man. The two bulls in Egypt possess a mystery, the sun and moon being a witness to Sabaoth, namely that over them Sophia received the universe. From the day that she made the sun and the moon, she put a seal upon her heaven unto eternity. And the worm that has been born out of the phoenix is a human being as well. It is written concerning it, the just man will blossom like a phoenix. And the phoenix first appears in a living state, and dies, and rises again, being a sign of what has become apparent at the consummation of the age. It was only in Egypt that these great signs appeared, nowhere else, as an indication that it is like God's paradise. Let us return to the aforementioned rulers, so that we may offer some explanation of them. Now when the seven rulers were cast down from their heavens onto the earth, they made for themselves angels, numerous, demonic, to serve them. And the latter instructed mankind in many kinds of error, and magic, and potions, and worship of idols, and spilling of blood, and altars, and temples, and sacrifices, and libations to all the spirits of the earth having their co-worker fate, who came into existence by the concord between the gods of injustice and justice. And thus, when the world had come into being, it distractedly erred at all times. For all men upon earth worshipped the spirits, daemons, from the creation to the consummation, both the angels of righteousness and the men of unrighteousness. Thus did the world come to exist in distraction in ignorance, and in a stupor. They all erred, until the appearance, parousia, of the true man. Let this suffice so far as the matter goes. Now we shall proceed to consideration of our world, so that we may accurately finish the description of its structure and management. Then it will become obvious how belief in the unseen realm, which has been apparent from creation down to the consummation of the age, was discovered. I come, therefore, to the main points regarding the immortal man. I shall speak of all the beings that belong to him, explaining how they happen to be here. 
When a multitude of human beings had come into existence through the parentage of the atom who had been fashioned and out of matter, and when the world had already become full, the rulers were master over it. That is, they kept it restrained by ignorance. For what reason? For the following, since the immortal father knows that a deficiency of truth came into being amongst the eternal realms, the aeons, and their universe, when he wished to bring to naught the rulers of perdition through the creatures they had modeled, he sent your likenesses down into the world of perdition, namely, the blessed little innocent spirits. They are not alien to Gnosis. For all Gnosis is vested in one angel who appeared before them. He is not without power in the company of the Father. And he gave them Gnosis. Whenever they appear in the world of perdition, immediately and first of all they reveal the pattern of imperishability as a condemnation of the rulers and their forces. Thus, when the blessed beings appeared in forms modeled by authorities, they were envied. And out of envy, the authorities mixed their seed with them in hopes of polluting them. They could not. Then, when the blessed beings appeared in luminous form, they appeared in various ways. And each one of them, starting out in his land, revealed his kind of gnosis to the visible church, constituted of the modeled forms of perdition. It, the church, was found to contain all kinds of seed, because of the seed of the authorities that had mixed with it. Then the Savior created of them all, and the spirits of these are manifestly superior, being blessed and varying in election. And also he created many other beings which have no king, and are superior to everyone that was before them. Consequently, four races exist. There are three that belong to the kings of the eighth heaven. The fourth race is kingless and perfect, being the highest of all. For these shall enter the holy place of their father, and they will gain rest in repose and eternal unspeakable glory and unending joy. Moreover, they are kings within the mortal domain, in that they are immortal. They will condemn the gods of chaos and their forces. Now the word, Logos, that is superior to all beings, was sent for this purpose alone, that he might proclaim the unknown. He said, There is nothing hidden that is not apparent and what has not been recognized will be recognized. And these were sent to make known what is hidden, and the seven authorities of chaos and their impiety, and thus they were condemned to death. So when all the perfect appeared in the forms modeled by the rulers, and when they revealed the incomparable truth, they put to shame all the wisdom of the gods, and their fate was found to be a condemnation, and their force dried up, their lordship was dissolved, their forethought became emptiness along with their glory. Before the consummation of the age, the whole place will shake with great thundering. Then the rulers will be sad, their death, the angels will mourn for their mankind, and the demons will weep over their seasons, and their mankind will wail and scream at their death. Then the age will begin, and they will be disturbed. Their kings will be intoxicated with the fiery sword, and they will wage war against one another so that the earth is intoxicated with bloodshed, and the seas will be disturbed by those wars. Then the sun will become dark, and the moon will cause its light to cease. The stars of the sky will cancel their circuits, and a great clap of thunder will come out of a great force that is above all the forces of chaos where the firmament of the woman is situated. Having created the first product, she will put away the wise fire of intelligence and clothe herself with witless wrath. 
Then she will pursue the gods of chaos whom she created along with the prime parent. She will cast them down into the abyss. They will be obliterated because of their wickedness, for they will come to be like volcanoes and consume one another until they perish at the hand of the prime parent. When he has destroyed them, he will turn against himself and destroy himself until he ceases to exist. And their heavens will fall one upon the next. And the ruler's forces will be consumed by fire. Their aeons, too, will be overturned. And his, the prime parent's heaven, will fall and break in two. They will fall into the abyss, and the abyss will be overturned. The light will shine in the darkness and obliterate it. It will be like something that has never been. And the product to which the darkness had been posterior will dissolve and the deficiency will be plucked out by the root and thrown down into the darkness, and the light will withdraw up to its root, and the glory of the unbegotten will appear, and it will fill all the eternal realm. When the prophecy and the account of those that are king becomes known and is fulfilled by those who are called perfect, those who, in contrast, have not become perfect, in the unbegotten Father will receive their glory in their realms and in the kingdoms of the immortals, but they will never enter the kingless realm. For everyone must go to the place from which he has come. Indeed, by his acts and his acquaintance, each person will make his nature known. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I hope you really enjoyed that. Go to magic.me to learn how to attain gnosis, overcome the demiurge, and escape the phenomenal illusory aeon all by yourself. Magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. I will see you in class. <laughs>